Deja Vu A novel by Ian Hocking Read by the author This novel is copyright Ian Hocking 2005 and was first published by the UKA Press. Please see www.ianhocking.com for further details. Chapter 25 It was a disappointingly mechanical affair. A hatch opened in the bottom of the gondola and she tumbled into a bright, cold sky. She opened her arms and legs to form an H, as David had described. A bat-like webbing stretched between her elbows and her chest. The tumbling stopped. She was falling, but certainly slower, body-surfing her way to the ground. She could see the curve of the earth. There was a heads-up display on the inner rim of a helmet. The text read, Attempting to contact GPS. Stand by. Without the global positioning system, she could miss her landing by hundreds of metres. Saskia looked down. The earth was rising. New text. Contacted. Logging on. Stand by. The ground seemed to expand. The horizon flattened. Log on successful. The display marked her drop zone with a green circle. There was a diagrammatical figure that represented her. A blue indicator suggested she should tilt in a northeasterly direction. She did so, and the indicator disappeared. The parachute opened, and she was jerked skyward. Sudden calm. She aimed for the green circle, but the drop-down cords were difficult to use. As she pulled right, she banked sharply and swung towards the ground. She had barely enough height to curse the design of the parachute before her boots hit Scotland. Remembering David's instructions, she held her feet together and rolled to one side. After the silence of the slow parachute descent, her impact was as startling as a gunshot. She detached her parachute, gathered it together and switched off her hood. She had landed in a valley on the south side of the research centre. It was likely that David Proctor and his colleagues were working directly beneath her. Help was twenty years away. If Jennifer had been correct in her calculations, Hartfield would arrive at the centre in twenty minutes. Saskia fantasised that she would hide nearby, tackle him, destroy his notes on the nanotechnology and allow him to be captured, and make good her own escape. But she was destined to write a message for her future self, place it under a rock outside Proctor's laboratory and spray some graffiti on the wall. So the guards came. She smiled. They ignored her German apologies. They led her downhill towards the River Almond and up again, past the tennis courts she and Scotty had seen, until they arrived at the hotel entrance. An unarmed guard walked alongside her while three others walked ten paces behind. There were no blind spots. Again, she felt the gravel crunch under her feet. Again, she smelled the pine. The hotel loomed. She passed the fountain with its stone Prometheus. She imagined him chained to a rock and tormented by the hawk sent from Zeus, but now the thought was a key to a room that was already unlocked. They entered the foyer. Her boots were silent. 
the same chandelier, the same green felt. Fewer paintings, but each, when viewed alone, was still the old one out. A man emerged from the lounge, and she disliked him after two strides. He had grey hair, bleached blue eyes, and a bushy moustache. Can I help you, miss? Saskia's smile reflected the chandelier. Ja, ja, ich weiß nicht, wo ich bin. I am lost. Understand? He twitched. You're German. Ja, genau. My name is Harrison McWhorter. I'm in charge of the hotel. To the guards, he said, back to your duties. They fell away. The foyer was soon empty but for herself and McWhorter. She shook his hand. My name is Adler, Zabina Adler. Perhaps you could tell me how you came to be parachuting into our grounds. I am with a, how do you call it, parachute school. I have lost my friends. I'll get you a telephone, he said, turning. Thank you. Saskia walked silently in his shadow. When they were behind the desk, McWhorter reached for the telephone. She put a hand on his neck and drove his forehead into the edge of the counter. He sighed and fell slowly, pulling the telephone to the floor. Saskia pushed him, together with the telephone, into the chair cavity. She adjusted her watch to match McWhorter's. There were ten minutes until Hartfield arrived. "'Good afternoon,' said a cheerful voice. Saskia became transparent and motionless. The suit's camouflage worked by diverting light, but her eyes needed those rays. Without them, she was blind." She heard the man stop. I must say that you're looking very well today, Colonel McWhorter. Who would compliment an empty desk? His footsteps moved away. Saskia lost her transparency and followed the man. She checked for cameras. None. A guard walked by. She curled into a bull behind a plant and became transparent once more. She held her breath as the guard walked past. One corner before the cloakroom, the man stopped. He turned. His eyes roamed. He had high cheekbones and a restless, smiling mouth. Saskia was not surprised at his youthful appearance. Inside the computer, realised as a twenty-one-year-old, he would be no different. Hello, he said. I believe we're walking the same way. My name's Bruce. I'm Adler, she said shaking his hand. Gloves. Aren't you warm? I have a skin condition. You're new here. Yes, how can you tell? One, your footsteps. Two, we don't have any German scientists. Saskia looked for cameras. Can we be overheard? Not here. Why? She pulled him towards the wall. Your name is Bruce Shimoda, but your parents christened you Gitchin. They called you Bruce after Bruce Lee. You loved his films when you were a child. During the first few months of your blindness, you had nightmares in which you were buried alive. You told only your father. He told me at your funeral. I'm from the future. Bruce's composure shattered. He released a shuddering breath. Don't tell me when I die, 
I won't. I need to get into the research centre. You can't. I must. We have only minutes before a bomb goes off in your laboratory. I have to stop it. A lie, but she needed Bruce's help. They had five minutes until Hartfield arrived. The bomb might detonate at any time. Will I die in the blast? he asked. Saskia considered her answer. No. The open lift travelled to the base of the shaft without stopping. Saskia, invisible, heard the bustle and conversation of each floor, but saw nothing. As the lift stopped, Bruce said, Hello, my friend. What a lovely day. The sun is shining, the birds are singing. Saskia dashed to one side. She felt for a wall and crouched. Working by Bruce's description, she was underneath the sill of the guard's booth. It was a sheer surface with holes for the guard's machine gun. To one side was a bomb-proof door. She heard Bruce collide with the wall. This wasn't here yesterday. Another voice said, Dr. Shimoda, please, you'll hurt yourself. She became opaque. She saw a guard enter the reception area and take Bruce by the arm. She grimaced. The guard was less than a metre away. If he turned in her direction, she would be seen. The guard led Bruce through the doorway. Saskia followed silently. Once through, she kept to the guard's back and skipped down the corridor to a rack of lab coats. She took one. She deactivated her hood and tousled her hair. She buttoned the lab coat and busied herself with a mounted floor plan, which she was too excited to read. Bruce touched her arm. Saskia, he asked. I told you we would get in. I have powerful friends. Keep your voice down. Take this. He plucked the security ID from his lapel. Like the ID she had stolen from Frank to access the research centre in Nevada, it had no picture. I'll say I lost mine, said Bruce. Where now? Take me to your laboratory. She looked at her watch. They had two minutes until Hartfield arrived. The corridor stretched ahead in ten-metre sections marked by blue fire doors. Hundreds of people passed. Bruce was leading her against the tide. Saskia wondered how many would die in the explosion. Where is everybody going? she asked. There's a concert. David's organising it. How far to the laboratory? Not far. Two more sets of doors. Saskia checked her watch again. 3.04pm. It was time. They strolled through the next set of doors. Ahead of them, chatting to a colleague, was Jennifer Proctor. Saskia stopped. Jennifer? What's wrong? Bruce whispered. Nothing, just a feeling of... The woman turned. Her hair was darker, she was older, and she had a grace that had escaped her daughter. This was Helen Proctor. The connections formed. Jennifer's mother. David's wife. Never mind that, Bruce said. What about the bomb? Saskia was about to answer when the floor shuddered. The lights flickered and extinguished. Then emergency lighting washed the corridor red. Saskia heard the infrastructure groan. Dust fell from new cracks. 
We're too late, said Bruce. And then the explosions began. They started quietly, distant firecrackers. The corridor was shaken by louder detonations, the smell of fire, heat, screams, some stifled, some ringing out. The floor dropped by an inch. They were thrown from their feet. The air pressure increased. She was caught in a giant machine, never meant for humans. Gaps would appear, only to close. The very walls might chew them. Saskia reassured herself that she would survive. Her goal was time, and it would protect her. <laughs>